I remember the first time that art moved me. I was a child, and my parents had gotten Riverdance, the Irish dancing show. They had gotten this for me on VHS from the Issaquah Library. Has anyone else watched this? A few people. I'm surprised, actually. <laughs> Um, I went into a deep dive into YouTube clips this week, uh, and just to remember, and it's seriously kind of amazing. Maybe more so now that the 90s outfits are so nostalgic. And when I was a kid, the music, the dancing, and river dance, it moved me, and I mean that literally. I was dancing all over the house. From Riverdance, my dancing dreams were born. I watched the dancers on that show over and over again. My parents checked out all the Riverdance company VHSs, and I poured over them. I stood in front of the TV with my hands at my sides and like practiced all these Irish dancing moves. I tried to mimic the dancers on the screen. Those videos, they inspired me. And they showed me that I, like anyone else, I could dance if I wanted to. And I decided that I was going to be a ballerina when I grew up. Now, as I stand before you, you can imagine that those dreams didn't come true. <laughs> I am not a professional ballerina, nowhere close. I haven't danced with Riverdance. I have no idea how Michael Flatley, uh, the guy in Riverdance, or as my, my family called him, Ale Flatley, because the library sticker covered up the Mike part of his name. <laughs> I have no idea how Ale Flatley moved his feet that fast. But the dancing, the music, it made me become more of an artist myself. It made me express myself through dance over many years. And after watching Riverdance, Lord of the Dance, Feet of Flames, all of them on VHS, I was a super fan. I got into ballet classes and I danced ballet for 10 years. And while my point shoes, they don't fit anymore. And while I haven't taken classes in a very long time, I haven't quit dancing. It's a part of who I am. And I think that's what art does. It moves us, both literally and figuratively. Art is meant to help us process experiences, our emotions we have in this wild thing we call life. It can comfort us. It can move us. I think good writing, art in that way, can tell us the story of how life could go. What could happen if we moved forward with justice, mercy, and love? Powerful photographs can make us ache and want to work for better laws in our world. Paintings might make us miss home or reach out to estranged loved ones. Poetry, it can make us cry and say, yes, I've experienced that too. It can make us feel a little less alone. I've seen this too, art moving people through the work of youth poets in our city who work with and perform with Youth Speak Seattle. I've seen their poetry slams a few times, their grand slams. It's amazing. Their words, these youth's words, they bring me to tears. I've never heard such truth before that comes out of these, the mouths of these youths. Poetry, paintings, a good story, beauty, unsettling images even, dance, a good meal, music. These create in us inspiration. They tell us how life is and how life could be. They unsettle us. They move us towards the work of the kingdom of God. They make us more ourselves with our emotions, and they heal us. This is good art. And this is what is happening in our text today. The book of Isaiah that we read about, uh, that we read in our Bibles, is a vast, it's a vast book of diverse writings, probably written by at least two, maybe three different people. 
uh, based on writing style and message and a whole host of other things, our text in Isaiah 40 that we read responsively together, it's probably written by a person that scholars call Second Isaiah. This mysterious person probably wrote this text in Isaiah 40 after Israel and Judah had been carted off by Babylon into exile, and the people reading this text had suffered much. We've talked about this in weeks past. They'd seen wars and had been taken as slaves by people conquering them. Many had died. Their cities and places of worship were in ruin. <clears throat> they were homesick and wondering if God would ever love them. They were having a crisis of faith. And I don't think we can blame them. We hear a lot in prophetic books in the Bible and even in Isaiah and other places about the destruction that will come if Israel doesn't repent and start acting right. But this text that we read responsively in Isaiah 40, it's a little different. Second Isaiah here, he writes something full of hope. We read it together this morning, but we read it together this morning, but let me read it one more time. Close your eyes if you want. Imagine what it would feel like to have this poetry wash over you as you are far away from your home and from your family. It goes like this. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what will I cry? All the people are like grass, and their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. And if you closed your eyes, you can now open them. I wonder what it felt like for you to hear these words. I wonder what Israel would have felt when they heard these words. Let's explore a few features of this poem to get a better picture. Firstly, I can imagine that hearing these words, these words might have felt like medicine to the Israelites as they were dealing with the pain of witnessing awful things, as they were doubting God for good reason and feeling that ache of being far from home. Maybe this art was healing to them. This poem that found its way into their hands somehow perhaps told them that God was there for them, that good things were coming. It told the story of something better, something that they could hope for. 
And this poem doesn't pretend that everything is good. It addresses the pain and what has happened, but it is art that painted a picture of hope and what God was going to do for them. It showed them a word picture of God the shepherd who held them in his arms, protecting them from danger. This is how the poem begins and ends and what is sprinkled throughout. This art reminded Israel of what had happened and painted a picture of what would or could come. This is medicine to their hearts. And secondly, this poem has a lot of hyperbole. There's some weird images that don't make a lot of sense right away. I like mountains a lot, and I like changes in terrain. Living in Chicago for a time was not great for me in that sense. So I kind of hate that this poem talks about flattening the mountains and raising the valleys. It makes no sense to me. However, this is an image that Israel would understand. Turns out in that time, valleys and mountain ranges were excellent places for robbers to lay in wait and kill travelers. Valleys were dangerous. They lacked water for weary travelers going a long way. It was a desert. In order to prepare for the coming of someone special, maybe someone royal, a king, people would have to pave the roads, as it were, to make things more flat for the royal person coming, to make the rough and rocky places less so, to make it so that there was maybe some water along the way to keep their visitor safe from robbers. The writer here was giving images to the people to make them feel the coming of God on their behalf, that this was something they needed to prepare for. The king was coming. The readers knew that this wasn't a literal command to flatten mountains and fill, fill in valleys. Instead, they knew that the Through this, God would show up for them to help them be free of Babylon and to heal. This was a liberative text. They were to prepare the royal highway, make things ready in their hearts for God's forgiveness and love towards them. This art medicine, this poem, would help remind them to do that. And this piece and so many others in our sacred text, it also reminds me that the Bible is inherently political. This poem, this art, was a bit wild. It broke the people of God out of their misery, perhaps. It made them sit up in their seats and look at each other. These words weren't just comfort, they were subversive. And the people reading it would know that. While Israel and Judah were still under the rule of Babylon, this prophetic poem told them that they wouldn't be for much longer, that God was coming to save them. This wouldn't have gone over well to their political leaders at the time. People who read it from Babylon might have thought that writings like this were circulating and getting people riled up for a revolution. No wonder there were so many zealots in Judah in the time of of Jesus trying to overthrow their oppressive rulers. This kind of poetry brought them to that. This kind of poetry had been whispered for centuries, sent along in underground news networks for generations as different tyrants ruled the people. Perhaps it had been bedtime reading for some of these people growing up. This poem was political for people who read it, and it reminds me that faith, it can be political too. When we read scripture, if we're really reading it, we see that sometimes it talks about overthrowing oppressive leaders. It talks of revolution. It talks of peace, but it talks of making change. It paints pictures of how we might care for those in our midst who aren't at the top. It values the earth and says that God's glory is revealed there, so why wouldn't we work for healthy policies regarding climate change? It tells us to welcome the stranger in our midst, so why would we lock children in cages at our border? 
These texts push the people of Israel to have hope in good things coming and to make a way to do justice, and it does the same for us. This is our text. And thirdly, another piece of this poem is the expanding of a vision. As is usual with our God, the poem doesn't just focus on this one group of people it is being written to. (laughs) It never does. The people of God are told to prepare the royal highway for God's coming to save them, but they're also told to get on a high mountain to cry out and to proclaim that people may fail. This would have been comforting to the people because we all know that we all do. They were to proclaim that people may fail, but that God does not. That though it might seem all like death and fear in their lives, God was bringing peace and God was bringing hope. I imagine the kind of mountain where you get to the top and anything you say bounces back and echoes all around so that everyone can hear. I really like hiking alpine lakes. And at the top of Alpine Lake, sometimes, if there's no one there, I will stand on a rock and sing an operatic aria. (laughs) And sometimes, it reverberates all around, depending on the valley that I'm hiking in. And I like to think that this is the kind of mountain that 2nd Isaiah was talking about, that you shout or sing so loud that everyone hears. It reverberates all around. God is all about expanding the vision, not keeping the hope to ourselves, but welcoming all into the glory and hope and love that is our God. The poet here shows the people that there is more to being comforted. It is receiving that comfort because we need it. And it is also about then going out and giving it to people that we meet, too. The trajectory of our text is always about throwing open more and more doors singing from the top of mountain lakes, and being with people that we wouldn't always expect. It is always moving away from exclusion towards inclusion and shouting it from the mountaintops, always. And so I love this poem, but there is a piece to it that I do not. And it makes me a little uncomfortable. This poem becomes less of a balm for weary souls and more of a painful medical procedure at a couple points. A strange medicine. And as as we go into it, um, as we talk about this, you have to know that I don't have all the answers, as with everything. (laughs) I do have some thoughts, but I don't have anything that feels totally right yet in my heart. I guess that's what happens when you're reading an ancient document written in ancient languages from different times and cultures that has people debating things about it for as long as it has been around. So we continue to study it. And here we go. The beginning of the poem is unsettling to me. And it's unsettling to me because it talks about forgiveness. Forgiveness of a people supposedly scorned by God to then be people brought back into God's good graces. I feel like this version of forgiveness isn't pretty and it isn't sweet. It's a strange tasting medicine, kind of like drinking cough syrup. And it makes me uncomfortable because it makes God's love look a lot different than I would imagine it would. My first question about this section on forgiveness is this. Who is this God? These people were tossed out by God, the text says, that God let them be conquered and plundered by the Babylonians for their unrepentant sin. They had received double for the punishment of their sins. And because of their sins, they were violently conquered, oppressed by a civilization that cared nothing for them. They lost family and they lost home. They died in captivity, many of them. 
And the text says that the Lord's hand did this. So I ask, why would God do this? Or why would God allow this? And who is their God? Who is this God? Perhaps to answer this, we have to hear more of the story, more of the history. Turns out that the Israelites were in their sacrifices to other gods, murdering children and burning them in worship ceremonies. These sorts of things, abuse, violence, oppression, they are real real in our world and they are awful. And I wonder, can people who perpetrate them receive forgiveness? Can these people who sacrifice their children on altars to other gods receive forgiveness? It is hard to accept, but yes, of course. God's love is everlasting and pursuing. God forgives and God loves, but when people are constantly doing violence against each other, especially the vulnerable, perhaps God, who is a loving and forgiving God, perhaps God says enough is enough. And I think this poem also reminds us that God takes sin very seriously because God loves us. God hates it when we treat each other with hatred. Sin isn't something that is unforgivable, but it is heavy. If we, like the Israelites at that time, are unrepentant, continuing to do these evils against one another, maybe against ourselves or against the earth, there comes a time when God says enough is enough. There comes a time when consequences to our actions are real and out of defense for those being hurt. And this seems to be what happens with Israel and Judah here. For a people who have been oppressed, for a people who are vulnerable, this, this is good news. For those who have been abused, hearing that there is justice is good news. God hears and God sees and God does something about it. For these children tossed in the flames, God hears, God sees, and God does something about it. But then comes my second question. So God allows them to have consequences for these actions in order to protect the vulnerable, perhaps, but why is it that God takes so long to forgive them, so many years they spent in captivity? Why is it that they must suffer for generations under rulers who hate them? Why? I don't like it. Isn't God's forgiveness wild and unconditional and always there? Why does this happen? But there is more that we must reckon with. In reading about this text this week, I learned that perhaps there are times when people aren't ready to be forgiven. I think we must learn from those who have been hurt and abused as they tell us what is needed. Sometimes moving into forgiveness and reconciliation too fast means that the abused continue to get hurt. And this is what happens perhaps in our text. Israel had rebelled against God and had committed atrocious acts against each other. They forgot who they were. Perhaps God knew that it would take some time for forgiveness to be possible. Even as they were carted off to Babylon, maybe they weren't ready. Maybe they hadn't realized yet what they had done and what they needed forgiveness for, as they hadn't done justice and loved mercy. Perhaps if they hadn't experienced some consequences, they would continue hurting each other, continue hurting the most vulnerable, continue oppressing people in their midst. It is a strange medicine that our healer God uses in taking time to forgive. 
But I think in this poem, Second Isaiah is sharing the heart of God, saying that God was ready to forgive the atrocious acts that Israel had done against vulnerable people because they were ready to receive it. They were ready to change. They knew what they had done. And God was now extending the hand of reconciliation through this poem, this piece of art, saying that if Israel came back repentant, they could be in relationship again. God was there, waiting, ready for them. And so what does this piece of art, this poem in Isaiah 40, teach us now in 2019? How does it expand our worldview, help us understand God more? How does it unsettle us, move us? and comfort us. I think we learn a few pieces, a few things from this piece of ancient art. Firstly, we we learn about forgiveness and reconciliation. Maybe we can recognize that forgiveness and reconciliation might take time, that sometimes we or others aren't ready for those things. Changed behavior, it is necessary. This is a hard lesson, but a good one. Sometimes we must let things go for a while and take time learning to forgive with God first. We learn, too, that our text is political, that God calls us to examine our political landscape with Scripture and see the ways that God might be inviting us to have hope and work for better things now in 2019. We are invited to continue expanding, to continue including, For that is what this is all about, to shout from the mountaintops who our God is and that God loves. We are also invited through this poem to continue making room in our hearts and spaces and places for the coming of our King, to prepare the royal highway as God comes to make things new and right in our lives. We are invited to make space to spend time with God. This is a great season to begin that again in Advent, to talk with God, to explore who God is and who we are. Perhaps for you that looks like reading and journaling. Perhaps it looks like spending time in nature and talking with friends, reading our sacred text. Maybe it looks like singing or listening to music, dancing, studying, serving, hosting. What sorts of ways are you an artist that helps you connect with God? And finally, I think we also learn that God calls us to works of art in our own ways that tell the truth about how life is and also how life could be. It might be art that seems like unconventional or like conventional medicine, beautiful and immediately helpful, beautiful art. Or maybe our art will be a strange medicine and unsettle us and move us. We can allow artists in our midst to break us open and help us see unsettling things about ourselves and our world. This is part of art's job. When we see something that needs changing to be more like the kingdom of God, we can create something. Writing, dance, art, a letter to the editor, a composting bin, a meal with many people around the table, something that allows us to move forward with greater goodness and greater beauty. We can receive comfort from art, too, and allow our own ways of being artists, and there are so many ways. We can allow our own ways of being artists to comfort others. It is a strange medicine, this poem that Second Isaiah writes. It's complicated. It's a strange piece of art that unsettles, that comforts, that heals and that moves Israel on to further throwing open the doors so that all can be well. 
And so we may, look at, may we look at this piece of art, take our own art, our own strange medicine, and may we use it for the good of the world. Amen.